Good morning. Ohayo gozaimasu. Welcome to Calvary Chapel Iwakuni. Great to be here with you guys, to worship the Lord, to enjoy the fellowship of the family of Christ. I pray that God ministers to each of us today. Well, this morning we are going to actually take a break from our verse-by-verse study through the Gospel of Luke. If you've been meeting with us regularly here on Sundays, we've been making our way through uh, the uh, Gospel of Luke, and we go verse-by-verse, chapter-by-chapter, kind of marching our way through. Uh, We're in chapter 6, but uh, as I was putting together the study, I just, it was not coming together, and I just thought, like, Lord, this is, this is not what is going to happen. This is not it. And, um, you know, today is uh, the first Sunday of the month. And uh, on the first Sunday of the month, our church tradition is to partake of communion together as a church family. And, um, and so I was just praying and considering and thinking, you know, God, what are you doing? What do you want us to do? And uh, I think what we're going to do today, well, I know what we're going to do, in fact, um, is we're going to visit a portion of Scripture that we often look to, but we rarely dive deep into. Uh, each time we have communion, uh, I usually read from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, uh, but we don't really understand the surrounding context of what's going on in uh, the church of Corinth. We don't understand kind of um, what led up to what he says in chapter 11, what kind of falls after chapter 11, and it really is a total package of, you know, regarding instruction on communion and instruction on coming to the Lord's table. Uh, And so this morning, um, we are going to take some time to look back upon Paul's instructions to the church in Corinth regarding communion in hopes that it would best prepare us for our time of communion at the close of our service this morning. And so uh, we will be back, excuse me, we will be back in Luke, Lord willing, next week. So if you were coming thinking you'd get into... uh, Uh, Luke chapter 6, verse 20, Um, just hold that thought. We'll be in there um, again, Lord willing, next week, okay? Our text this morning is going to be 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 17 through 34. The title of our message is going to be The Lord's Supper, okay? The Lord's Supper. And so go ahead, open up your Bible, make your way to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And then uh, actually... If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, a number of the chairs underneath them have Bibles. Feel free to reach down and grab one of those, borrow them. Um, And then once you've found 1 Corinthians chapter 11, I'd like to ask you to rise to your feet in honor of God and His Word. Now I'm going to read from my Bible, uh, the Word of the Lord for us today. I read from the New King James Version of the Bible. If you're reading from a different version, I just want to encourage you to follow along Uh, to the best of your ability, okay? Paul, who is the author of this epistle, he writes the following in verse 17. Now, in giving these instructions, and these instructions are for the Lord's Supper, okay? He says, I do not praise you, since you come together not for the better, but for the worse. For first of all, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and in part I believe it. For there must also be factions among you, that those who are approved may be recognized among you. Therefore, when you come together in one place, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in eating, each one takes his own supper ahead of others, and one is hungry and another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? 
Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I do not praise you. Verse 23. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Verse 27. It says, Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord, that we may not be condemned with the world. Therefore, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. But if anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, lest you come together for judgment. And the rest I will set in order when I come. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning, this opportunity that we have to gather together as a church family, to really just submit ourselves to you and submit ourselves to your word. And as it is the first Sunday of the month, Lord, we set aside time just to commune with you and to observe the Lord's Supper. And Lord, we're going to take just extra time this morning to dive deep into this topic. And Lord, I pray that you would lead us and guide us, that we might understand just these instructions that Paul was giving to the church in Corinth and how they may apply to us today. And so lead us and guide us. We ask and pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may have a seat. In our text this morning, Paul is addressing the topic of the Lord's Supper and the Corinthian church's observance of it. And for those of you who actually like to take notes or perhaps outline our text, I have divided up our text into five small sections dealing with Paul's instructions regarding the Lord's Supper. And as we go through our text this morning, we're going to note five different things that were involved in Paul's instruction to the church in Corinth regarding the observance of the Lord's Supper. And the first thing that we note in Paul's instruction regarding the Lord's Supper is that it involved a rebuke, okay? It involved a rebuke, okay? Take a look at verses 17 through 22 with me again as we note the rebuke that Paul brought against the church. He says, Now in giving these instructions, I do not praise you, since you come together not for the better, but for the worse. For first of all, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and in part I believe it. For there must also be factions among you, that those who are approved may be recognized among you. Therefore, when you come together in one place, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in eating, each one takes his own supper ahead of others, and one is hungry and another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I do not praise you. Paul opens up by saying, in giving these instructions, I do not praise you. Paul 
could not praise them for their actions regarding their observance of the Lord's Supper. Instead of praising them, Paul brought a rebuke against them. He rebuked them really for four different reasons, if you'd like to try and note them. Number one, okay, Paul rebuked them because they, when they came together, it was not for the better, but for the worse. Basically, what Paul was saying was that when the church got together for fellowship and worship and specifically to observe the Lord's Supper, that it was actually for the worse. It caused more harm than it did good. Something that should have been a blessing for all, something that should have been for the good of all, was actually causing more harm than good. You know, in the first century church, it was very common for the church body to gather together for uh, common meals. They were called agape feast or love feast. You know, much like our modern day potluck, people would bring uh, different dishes in to share and the body of Christ would eat together. They would enjoy great fellowship with one another. Uh, They were called agape feast uh, based upon the word agape is the Greek word for love. And so because the main emphasis in these feasts was showing love. For one another through the sharing of the meal and through remembering the Lord's love for them. Acts chapter 2 tells us about the practice of the church and they gathered together regularly and often for these common meals, for times of fellowship, to break bread together. We're told in Acts chapter 2 verse 42 that the church continues steadfast in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship in the breaking of bread and in prayers. We're told that all who believed were together. They had things in common in verse 44 uh, and then in verses uh, 46 and 47. It tells us that they continued daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house. They ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all people. And we're told that the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. So the church, they got together and they shared meals from house to house and they took care of one another, sharing with others, making sure that all had enough that they uh, would when they would break bread together. And often, as is attested to, following these agape feasts, these potlucks of sorts, the church family would set aside time to observe the Lord's Supper. They they would partake in communion together. And it was a perfect way to cap off the meal in, in their time of fellowship by remembering what united them all in the first place, their common faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, What was meant to be a wonderful time of fellowship and worship and sharing of the love of Christ was actually something that was causing harm. Uh, And Paul rebuked them for doing such a thing. You know, for us today, we need to remember that when we gather together corporately for fellowship and worship, that it should be something that's good for all of us. Our time together should not be forsaken as Hebrews chapter 10 warns us, it's important for us. Okay? It's for our own good. Hebrews declares, and let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another and so much more as you see the day approaching. You see, when we gather together, it isn't just so we can check a box and make ourselves feel good about going to church. Okay? Our gathering together is meant to be a time where we engage one another. 
Okay? We should consider one another. Okay? While doing so, we should be stirring up one another in love and toward good works. We should be encouraging one another, exhorting one another, realizing that our time here on earth is short. You see, if all you do is come here, you worship the Lord, listen to the message, and then bolt out of here, you're missing out on many of the things that our gathering together is meant to be. We need to engage one another. Talk to the people next to you, okay, around you, not just your friends, not just the people that you came with. Okay, reach out to those you don't know. Okay, introduce yourself to them. Find out about what God is doing in their lives and encourage them. We're in this thing together. And so let's make sure that we get the full benefit of all that is available to us as we gather together. Well, back to our text. I said that Paul rebuked them for four reasons. The first one was because their gathering together was causing more harm than it was good. The second reason he rebuked them had to do with the divisions that were among them, as we see in verse 18. The word divisions in the Greek, it's the word schisma. We can practically hear the English word that it represents. It's the word schism. A schism is a separation in the church body that results due to discord, disharmony, and disagreement. Now, unfortunately, this wasn't a new problem for the church in Corinth. In the first four chapters of this book, Paul dealt primarily with the divisions that had developed in the church at Corinth. The division mentioned at the beginning of this book dealt primarily with the various leaders of, uh, and the members of the church following after certain leaders. Some claimed that they were of Paul. Others said that they were of Apollos. And some even said that they were of Cephas, which was another name for the apostle Peter. And still there was another group going around saying, well, you know, you're of Paul and Apollos and Cephas, but we are of Christ. You know, almost kind of that idea that this holier-than-thou type of attitude, you know, we, we, we follow Jesus, not these men, okay? Paul concluded that they were acting carnal by being this way, that they were acting like mere men. But based upon the context here, it could be that the divisions Paul mentions here went beyond that of the various church leaders they followed. It would seem that they also had divisions based upon socioeconomic status. Okay? Basically, there were divisions among the church regarding those who had and those who didn't. There were those that were wealthy and they had a high status in the church. And then there were many poor people in the church as well. And based upon our text here, it would seem that there were developing divisions within the church based upon people's wealth and status. Paul mentions those who have food aplenty and houses to eat in and enjoy their own food, while there were others who were going without. And shame was being brought upon those who had nothing. And so Paul rebuked them for these divisions, these separations, these schisms that were based upon social status. Listen, church family, there is no room in the church for this type of thinking. We are all the same in Christ. We are one in Christ. The rich and the slave are brothers in Christ. The haves and the have-nots, they are one. We are all sinners in need of the grace of God. Well, a third thing that Paul rebuked the church over was in connection to the factions that had developed among them as seen in verse 19. 
The word factions in the Greek is the word heresis. It's where we get our English word heresy from. And while we recognize that word as being something that is contrary to the received uh, and or accepted doctrine of the church, within the New Testament scriptures, the primary use of this word speaks of a sect within a particular group. The word's used nine times in the New Testament, and six of the times it's used in the New King James Version, it's translated as the word sect. Uh, two times it's translated as heresies, and then only once, here in verse 19 in our text, it's translated as factions. The meaning of the word is closely related to the word division used in verse 18, but there is a difference. The main difference is that while a division or a schism is an actual tearing apart from a group, heresis may represent a divergent opinion, but still be part of a whole. So you have a group of people there together, but within that group, there's this uh, inner group that has a different opinion than everybody else. They haven't fully separated away from everyone, but there's this kind of forming of this group uh, that's separate, okay? Basically, the factions that are mentioned here in verse 19 are what was leading to the divisions that were mentioned in verse 18. Now, interestingly enough, Paul said that while these factions weren't something that was great, there was something that the Lord would use from them. Basically, the factions would be used to serve as evidence of those who basically really were approved of uh, by the Lord, those who were the faithful follower of the Lord. They would steer clear of those who were involved in developing factions that led to division. Those who continued in their factions and ultimately divided from the church went to show that they most likely never really were part of the church. First John actually speaks about how sometimes there are those who may seem like they are part of the church, but in time their actions prove otherwise. It reads in 1 John chapter 2, verse 19, it says, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that they might be made manifest that none of them were of us. You know, sometimes there are those who gather together with the church who are simply playing church. And they haven't really surrendered their heart to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior of their life. In time, their actions will reveal that they were never really part of the church. For if they were, they would have continued with us, but they departed, they left us, proving they were never really part of the church in the first place. They were simply going along for the ride, and they decided to get off when the church no longer served their own selfish ambitions and desires. And I want to encourage you guys I know it starts with a rebuke here, and maybe that's not the most positive, uplifting thing on a Sunday morning that you want to hear, but I want to encourage you guys, may this be just a warning. Okay, may it be a warning for any here who are simply going along for the ride, who are playing church, who are waffling back and forth. Okay, You may be fooling some, but the Lord knows. Okay, stop playing games. Stop riding the fence. Make that commitment to surrender to Jesus Christ because eternity, eternity is at stake. And this isn't something that you want to be messing around with. You never know when it will be too late and your opportunity to surrender to the Lord is lost. The scriptures attest, behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Okay, do not delay. 
When we delay, we take the risk of hardening our heart more and more. Because the more we say no to the conviction of the Holy Spirit, the easier it becomes to say no again and again and again. Today, as the Holy Spirit said this, today, if you will hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. Beware, brethren, Hebrews chapter 3 says, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief and departing from the living God, but exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Don't let your heart be hardened. Stop resisting the work of the Holy Spirit and surrender to Him today. And stop trying to ride the fence and play games. Eternity hangs in the balance. Do not delay. Well, the fourth and final thing that Paul rebuked the Corinthians over had to do with the fact that when they came together, they weren't really partaking of the Lord's Supper. You see, they came together, they ate, they took the bread, they drank the cup, but what they were doing had nothing to do with the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper was about remembering the most selfless act of all time. The Son of God willingly surrendering His body to be crucified. His blood to be shed for the remission of sins. It was to be a time where the body came together and was united in their love for the Lord and their love for one another. What it had become for the church in Corinth was a selfish, drunken party where the social elite weren't sharing with the others and they consumed the elements in excess while others went without. They weren't waiting for others or considering others. People were just doing whatever they wanted to. They were being led by their appetites instead of being led by love. And in response, Paul says, what? In verse 22, do you not have houses to eat and drink in? He's shocked. He's appalled at what they had turned the agape feast into. The love feast was absent of love. When he says what, you know, it's as if he's saying like, oh my, you know, it's, it's like, come on. Don't, how do you not see this? <laughs> they were totally missing it. And in so doing, when they were despising the church of God and shaming their fellow believers. The church in Corinth was going through the proper motions, but their heart was not in it. They were partaking of the bread and the cup, but they were missing the entire point. So much so as to what they were doing, Paul says, that can't even be considered the Lord's Supper. It looks like it, but that ain't it. This is something that can still take place today in the church. We can get caught up in going through the motions and totally miss out on the heart and the intent of what we are doing. We can sing songs and we can read the words up on the screen without ever truly taking the words to heart, without ever really entering into worship. We can read the word, but never let it penetrate our heart to mold us and shape us into the image of Jesus Christ. This can happen in so many areas of our life in Christ. When we do something enough, Okay, we can easily turn it into something and it, that it becomes a mindless ritual we do and we end up missing the point of it all. We could do this in our worship. We could do this in our tithing. We could do this in our prayers where we say our prayers before meals and bedtime, but we really aren't speaking to the Father. We're just kind of going through the motions. Okay, yeah, let's pray. Let's do this. It's what we do. But are you really engaging the Father? 
May we never lose sight of the reason why we do the things that we do. May our faith in the Lord never become something that we just do as some sort of religious ritual stripped of its true intent. As we consider Paul's instruction regarding the Lord's Supper and the rebuke that he had for the church in Corinth, I think the application for us is simple enough to see. Let's make sure that we aren't just going through the motions, that we aren't just playing games. Let's make sure that we are being genuine, that when we gather together, that it would be towards the benefit of all. Let's continue in our text, taking a look at our next section of Paul's instruction regarding the Lord's Supper. The first section dealt with a rebuke. The second section reminds us that the Lord's Supper involves remembrance. Okay, remembrance. Take a look at verses 23 through 26. Paul writes, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Verse 26, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. We'll stop there. Because the church had made such a mess of the Lord's Supper, Paul takes the time here to once again lay out the original meaning and the intent of the Lord's Supper. And it has a great deal to do with remembrance. Okay, verse 23 tells us that the Lord's Supper is not just some man-made tradition or ritual, but that it is something that was established by the Lord Jesus himself. Okay? And Paul was given direct revelation into the establishment and the institution of the Lord's Supper from the Lord, and he subsequently is delivering it here to the church in Corinth. The Lord's Supper has a lot to do with remembering. As we partake of the Lord's Supper, there are four things I see in our text that the Lord would want us to remember, if you'd like to note them. Okay? Four things. First of all, as we partake of communion, we should remember the night of his betrayal and the many events that were part of that day. Remember that the Jews could count a day from sundown to sundown. The night in which he was betrayed was the first part of the day that led to Jesus' crucifixion. And while we rightly emphasize the crucifixion, there was more that occurred that night that we should remember. After instituting the Lord's Supper, Jesus went away and he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, asking the Lord if there was any other way, requesting another way, but yielding to the Father's will. Jesus said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will but what you will. Jesus' prayer in the garden was excruciating for him. He was filled with so much agony that his sweat began like great, became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground, according to Luke's gospel in Luke chapter 22, verse 44. Remembering the events in the garden remind us of the great price that Jesus paid. It reminds us that there was no other way After his prayer in the garden, he was then subsequently betrayed by one of his own. He was handed over to the authorities and he was mocked and he was beaten and he was illegally tried and sentenced to die upon the cross as an innocent man. And so we're to remember that night. We're to remember the events of that day. 
But even more so, secondly, Jesus specifically said we are to remember his body, which is broken for us. Jesus took the bread of the Passover meal and he broke it and he handed it to his disciples to partake of. And he said that the bread was a picture of his body, a significant reminder of what Jesus did. Now, interestingly enough, the bread that was used during the Passover celebration is what we call matzah bread. And the matzah bread has significant elements to it that all point to Jesus. The matzah bread was unleavened. Now, leaven within the scriptures, if you're a Bible student, you'll know that within the scriptures, it is often a picture of sin. Okay? And so, just as the bread in the Passover had no leaven in it, okay, there was no sin, if you will, so too the body of Christ. The body of Christ was free from sin. Hebrews 4.15 tells us that Jesus was tempted in all points, just as we are, yet was without sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21 states that God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. 1 John chapter 3, verse 5 tells us that Jesus was manifested to take away our sins, and in him there is no sin. And so, not only was the bread unleavened, okay, it was also striped with dark markings on the bread from being heated very quickly at high temperatures. And this also points to the body of Christ. Isaiah 53 verse 5 states regarding the Messiah, regarding Jesus, that he was wounded for our transgressions, that he was bruised for our iniquities, and that the chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. Jesus' body was beaten and whipped and striped for us, and it is through his striped body that we find spiritual healing. The matzah bread was also pierced. Okay? They would take a fork or similar utensil to pierce the bread to prevent it from rising while being cooked over this high heat. So too the body of Christ would be pierced for us in fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies. Psalm 22 speaks of the suffering of the Messiah. And verse 16 tells us that they would pierce his hands and his feet, a foreshadowing of the cross when Jesus' hands and feet would be nailed to it. The matzah bread was part of that Passover meal. It was a picture of the body of Christ, which was without sin. It was broken, it was striped, and it was pierced for us. As we partake of the bread, we are to do so in remembrance of his broken body. In like fashion, Jesus told us that we are also, thirdly, to remember his blood. That was the seal of the new covenant. Jesus took one of the cups from the Passover meal that would have had wine in it, and he passed it around declaring that it was to be a picture of the new covenant that was in his blood. Now, traditionally, there are four cups associated with the Passover meal that Jesus was partaking of with his disciples. And the cup that Jesus told the disciples to remember was the third cup. We know that because the third cup is the one that's taken after supper, and we're told that this was taken after supper. Now, the third cup okay, is referred to as the cup of redemption. Jesus took the cup of redemption and he pronounced a new covenant in his blood that would redeem all people. Jesus fulfilled the picture of the Passover. He became our Passover lamb. When he went to the cross, he poured out his blood upon the cross of Calvary. Jesus came not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood. He entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption, according to Hebrews chapter 9, verse 12. 
Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7 declares, In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of His grace. In an act of great judgment from God, with outstretched arms upon the cross, Jesus redeemed us with His blood, and He established a new covenant. You know, we often refer to this new covenant as a covenant of grace in comparison to the covenant of the law found in the Old Testament. And while this new covenant resulted in grace, technically speaking, it was a blood covenant. That's the kind of covenant it was, a blood covenant. The Old Testament covenant was a blood covenant as well. The sins of the people would be transferred upon the animal sacrifices. Their blood would be shed as a means of trying to cover up their sins. But Hebrews chapter 10 tells us that the blood of bulls and goats could not take away sins. They could not remove sins. And that is why the priest would stand ministering daily, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices over and over again that can never take away sins. But Jesus, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 11 and 12 tells us that. As we partake of the cup, we are to remember Jesus' blood that was shed for us. And the new covenant that resulted in grace being extended to us. No longer are we under the law, but under grace because of the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Well, the fourth and final thing that we are to remember is that Jesus Christ is coming back. He will one day return for His church. Verse 26 reads, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till He comes. While the three previous things we are to remember were things that have already taken place, the fourth and final thing that we are to remember is in regards to the Lord's Supper uh, involves a yet-to-be-fulfilled promise from the Lord. You see, on the night in which He was betrayed, after partaking of the Passover meal with His disciples and establishing the Lord's Supper, establishing communion, Jesus said to them, to His disciples, He said this, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Jesus assured his disciples that he would come again, that he would return When Jesus ascended into heaven before the disciples' very eyes, the angels appeared to them attesting, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. Jesus is going to return one day for his church and he will establish his reign upon this earth and from then on we will be with him for all of eternity. And so, while most of what we remember has us looking back, upon past events, one thing Jesus didn't want us to forget in regard to the Lord's Supper is that it also reminds us of His yet future promise of Him returning for us. The Lord's Supper is primarily about remembering the death of Jesus Christ. But not just the fact that He died, but why He died, how He died. 
He died willingly for us upon the cross of Calvary so that, we might, so that He might pay the debt that we could not pay ourselves. He paid for our sins. And in so doing, He redeemed us from the power and the penalty of sin, which is death. And now we have a glorious future promise of eternity with Him to look forward to. Let's look to our next section of instruction that Paul gives regarding the Lord's Supper. It involves reflection. Okay, reflection. Read verses 27 through 30 with me. Therefore, whoever eats this bread of dr- or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. We'll stop right there. Here we see that the Lord's Supper must involve an element of reflection, self-reflection. A man is to examine himself prior, prior to partaking of the bread and the cup. Verse 27 and verse 29 both mention the possibility of participating in the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. Now, some people have looked at this and they've gotten it all wrong thinking that they themselves must be worthy in order to partake of the Lord's Supper. Okay? They think that since they are maybe perhaps struggling with a certain sin or perhaps they've been especially sinful lately, that they cannot partake of the elements in the Lord's Supper because they are unworthy of partaking of communion. Listen, that is not what these verses are saying. Hey, I want to just make that very clear to you. That is not what these verses say. In fact, I would suggest to you that a believer that is particularly struggling with sin or perhaps has just gotten a little off path and recognizes the error of his ways, coming to the Lord's table to, to, to participate in the Lord's Supper may just be one of the best things for him. The Lord's Supper it reminds us of what Christ did for us. It reminds us of the price that he paid for our sin. It reminds us of the victory that we have through him. It reminds us of the promises that he's given to us. These are all important things for us to consider when we are going through tough or challenging times. Listen, if partaking of the Lord's Supper was only meant to be for those who are worthy, none of us would be able to partake. None of us are worthy in and of ourselves. It's not the person who is worthy or unworthy, but the manner in which we partake of the elements that is worthy or unworthy. I want to make sure you guys understand that, okay? Remember what Paul rebuked the church for in the first place. They were partaking of the elements, but they weren't really observing the Lord's Supper. They were simply going through the motions. They were totally missing the importance and the significance of the Lord's Supper. What they were doing was partaking of the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner, They were treating the Lord's Supper as if it were a common meal without attributing to it or properly recognizing the elements and their proper value. That is what it means to partake in an unworthy manner. Now, don't get me wrong. Someone who's walking in sin can be guilty of partaking in an unworthy manner, not because he's unworthy, but because he isn't taking seriously the significance of the elements. Perhaps he's just going through the motions or perhaps he thinks he can continue to sin and it won't impact his relationship with the Lord. Either way, he's wrong and he would be guilty of partaking in an unworthy manner. And if we partake in an unworthy manner, we can be found guilty of the body and blood of the Lord, according to verse 27. Now, what this means is debatable to some. What I've come to believe 
based upon my own studies and observations, is that basically we are found to be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. We treat them poorly. We're not giving them their proper value, their proper weight. We are undermining the work of Christ's broken body and his shed blood. Also, verse 29 states that if we partake in an unworthy manner, that we are bringing judgment upon ourselves by not properly discerning the Lord's body. Now, I do find this very interesting. Because while it is possible Paul's referencing the same thing about bread when mentioning not properly discerning the Lord's body, okay, he could be talking about the bread that he just talked about, okay? There is, however, another possible explanation that I believe warrants our attention. Again, I'm brought back to the example of the Corinthian church and the problems Paul brought up at the beginning of our text. The Corinthians were not considering one another. They were being selfish and partaking in excess. Some were getting drunk while others were going without. They were not being mindful of their brothers and sisters in Christ. And it's interesting to consider that just in the previous chapter of this, in chapter 10, Paul wrote about how the bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we, though many, are one bread and one body, for we all partake of that one bread. While the bread is symbolic of the body of Christ, we too, as believers in the Lord and partakers of the new covenant, are part of the body of Christ. And it could be that when Paul speaks about not discerning the Lord's body, that he could very well be pointing to the church body. That if we come together, we don't discern the church body. That we don't consider the church body, our brothers, our sisters in Christ, and we selfishly partake for ourselves, then we could then be guilty of partaking in an unworthy manner and in doing so bring judgment upon ourselves. And I feel like this interpretation fits with the overall context of this section. The church in Corinth wasn't thinking of one another. They were sinning against their brothers and sisters in Christ. And in so doing, they were partaking in an unworthy manner. And the impact of such sin is that it was causing many in the church to be weak and sick among them, and and many even died as a result. That's what it means when it says, in many sleep. It's not talking about falling asleep in church. Okay, um, it's talking about death. That's a euphemism for people were dying. Okay, this was serious business. Okay, that's why it's so important that prior to partaking of the Lord's Supper, we must first spend some time in self-reflection. We must examine ourselves prior to partaking. What does it mean to examine ourselves? Well, the word examine, it means to test or to prove, or to scrutinize, to see whether something is genuine or not. It means that we ask ourselves the following types of questions. Is my faith in the Lord genuine? Okay. Am I coming before the Lord with the right heart? Are there areas in my life that God would have me to change? Are there things in my heart that I need to surrender to Him? Am I being considerate and mindful of my brothers and sisters in Christ? Is there anything that I have against my brother that I should first confess and make right before I partake of the Lord's Supper? We need to take time to genuinely seek the answers to these types of questions and examine ourselves. That's what it means. 
Wrapping up our text, we have two more things we want to note regarding Paul's instruction on the Lord's Supper, and we're going to do so rather quickly. Okay, the next lesson Paul has for us is that the Lord's Supper involves repentance. Okay, take a look at verses 31 and 32. It says, For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord that we may not be condemned with the world. You see, the natural response to our time of reflection is to allow it to lead us to a time of repentance. After asking those questions of ourselves and examining ourselves, if there are areas of concern, well, then we need to then confess them to the Lord and we need to repent. Paul writes that if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. If we come to the proper conclusion, we repent of our sins, then we wouldn't have to fear the judgment of the Lord in regards to him bringing sickness or weakness to our bodies or even death. 1 John 1, 9, it's our spiritual soap. Okay? John writes, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Proverbs verse, chapter 28, verse 13 declares, He who covers his sins will not prosper, but whoever confesses and forsakes them will have mercy. If we don't confess and repent from our sins, then we will be judged. The Lord will chasten us that we may not be condemned with the world. God will chasten those whom he loves. Hebrews chapter 12 declares, My son, do not despise the chasing of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens, and he scourges every son whom he receives. You see, God will discipline us out of his great love for us. He doesn't want us to experience the condemnation of the world, and so he will step in, he will correct us, and he may even just bring us home. As we partake of the Lord's Supper, let's make sure that we spend time confessing and repenting from our sin and allow the Lord's love to to wash over us, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The final word Paul had for the church in Corinth was a simple one involving resolve. Let's finish off our text by reading verses 33 and 34. It says, Therefore, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. But if anyone's hungry, let him eat at home, lest you come together for judgment. And the rest I will set in order when I come. Paul very simply presents the resolve for the church. That when they come together, they're to wait for one another. Okay? And if someone's hungry, finding it difficult to control himself, he should just eat at home. Okay? The emphasis here was quite simple. Wait for one another. Partake together as a church family. Look out for one another, care for one another, treat one another with mutual respect and love and adoration. Let your coming together truly be a love feast, a time that honors the Lord, a time that honors his sacrifice, a time that honors and remembers his body, his blood, but also his church family. Amen? Amen.